And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I think it's fair to say that there are many things on which I disagree with Rick Santorum, the uh, former senator from Pennsylvania and two-time presidential candidate. But I also have come to know him uh, from our work as senior commentators for CNN. And while I still disagree with him on many, many things, I also have found uh, points of uh, common concern uh, that uh, have been interesting to me. And I asked Rick in the wake of the Alabama election, with all its consequences, uh, to sit down and talk about his life and career and where the Republican Party is today, and I think some of it may surprise you. I should say we're going to break from our normal format here and take an exchange that happened at the end of the conversation and move it up to the front of this podcast because I thought that the subject was so consequential uh, that I didn't want anybody to miss it. So we're going to move that up and then get back to Senator Santorum's very interesting story. Uh, and I hope you'll stay on board for the entire journey. Rick Santorum, so good to be with you. It seems like just hours ago that we were sitting on a set uh, talking about the uh, election in uh, Alabama, and we'll get we'll get to that. We we had this election yeah. in Alabama. Followed an election in Virginia. There's something going on in the country, and there's something. There was something going on in 2016. I want you, because you were sort of ahead of the curve in terms of um, cultural politics from the right and uh, also economic politics, you very much were associated. Yeah, I wrote a book four years ago called Blue Collar Conservative. Right. And you were very, uh, very critical of trade uh, trade deals and so on. Uh, So in some ways, you were a forerunner of, uh, of the president's on this, yeah. although uh, probably— Not stylistically a forerunner. <laughs> well, and probably gave a little more thought to these positions. Uh, but uh, So tell me what's going—what you see as the political moment here. What does Alabama mean, and what is the state of the Republican Party? Yeah, I, you, you, not to be repetitive on things that I say on the air, but I, uh, my general focus on the air has been, and, and I'll, I'll repeat it here because this is what I've, I truly believe, which is— I believe the policies of this president are very are good policies and can be broadly supported. I don't think anything that he's pushing forward uh, are are problematic from an electoral point of view. Uh, I, I think this tax bill is something that I think is going to be overblown as you know. Oh, this is a giveaway. But if you well, look it's not at it, help blue collar people particularly. I mean, it do, well, it's it, mostly it, skewed to corporate. But if it, yeah, but as you know, I mean, President Obama even said we have to cut the corporate rate in this country. So but a lot of people would argue. I would argue we've got a ridiculous tax code, and reform would be blowing out all these preferences in order to lower rates. Yeah, I think they did blow out a lot. Some preferences, uh, yeah, a lot I, of them on the individual side. Well, they did both. I mean, I think they tried to tried to reform the code to make it less bells and whistles and all the different preferences that you talk about and get to a, a lower rate with you know, a simpler code and, and, and income that's actually taxed. 
the, the, the you don't have a forty percent rate where after all the deductions it's really comes down to a twenty five percent rate. And we so, have a disparate rate. Yeah, we all talk about the thirty five percent rate. The fact is, some corporations pay that, others pay nothing, and that's wrong. And that's why getting that's why getting these all these bells and whistles that we talked yeah. about, getting them out of the code. The is whether this. Whether they, I, I haven't seen the final details, but yeah. they did get some out. So it, to get back to the larger point, mm-hmm. I think the president's approach on trade, I think the president's approach on uh, on on economics and uh, are actually very popular among middle America. And uh, and I think he could do very, very well. But his personal antics have just overwhelmed uh, the, uh, the the accomplishments of this administration and, and the efforts that he's trying to put forward. And uh, if that continues, if the president continues to try to, to, to bring out his personal peeves with whoever happens to insult him the day before, uh, you're, you're going to have an exhaustion factor. Many of my friends uh, who are, you know, you focused last night, I think, wisely on suburban moderate republicans and and suburban moderate republicans are less and less voting for republicans right uh but they still strongly vote for republicans that yeah, is this, in jones for example carried counties in yeah. alabama that were uh, or, or did very well in them that used to be hardcore republican strongholds that were but they were more suburban, suburban. Right? yeah and and so trump's personal problems, uh, whether it's Twitter or whether it's his speeches and the way he he talks about people and talks to people, uh, create a fatigue factor and 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 an erosion of support for him. Whether they support his policies or not, they're just they're they're just tired of the of the continual controversy, right? The noise. And the thing that's actually helping him right now, oddly enough, is the blowback of this investigation, and um, and you know, that it's drug on for a while. And there's still, you know, he, he still doesn't. There still wasn't any smoking gun out there, and and so he's he's getting the benefit of of now some bad hires by 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 Mueller, and he had to fire some people and let some people go. So it calls into question the investigation. So all of this has created. More noise, but probably favorable noise to, to Trump at this point. That's all going to go away at some point, probably within the next month or two. Mueller's going to probably come back with something, and you know we'll be on to the next phase. But if he continues the personal stuff, that noise is going to continue to hurt him. What you just on on the issue of Trump? You're a guy who's placed morality kind of at the center of your politics. Uh, you got the president who's under siege for his you know, for the, all of these women who've stepped forward um, and uh, and for his general language, I mean, uh, in front of cameras, yeah. using language that uh, one wouldn't want to use in front of your kids. I'm sure you wouldn't want to use no, in front I mean, of your I, kids. No, I mentioned, I think, off off air that, you know, as as you grow a little long in the tooth and your hair gets a little grayer, you think about, you know, what your impact is on on the lives that you touch, right? And, and are you, whether it's your children or, or their friends or the people that you work with, uh, are, you, are you imparting just by who you are and what you do and what you talk about? Are you imparting you know, life lessons? Are you providing some sort of, I, I know people, I'm not a role model. Well, 
you know, I, I think you are, and I think I, I think I am, whether, whether we want, want to be or not. Of the United States to be, and and that's my point. And and so when I see a president who I don't see as a role model for the lessons of life that I want to impart on my my children and 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 the people that I care for in, in this world, that. That's that's bothersome to me. It's one of the reasons that I constantly harp at him on the air uh, to stop behaving this way because and, and generally, because I think it's harm. It's not just harmful to him, and it is harmful to him. It's not just harmful for the things he believes in, and it is, but it's it's harmful to to have a generation of Americans see that this is the way you know people of of of, of responsibility and and power and and influence behave. Uh, but and generally, what I say when you say that, and I agree with you completely, because you know I have great reverence for our democracy. I felt every day when I walked into the White House that it was an incredible honor to be there. I said the same and, thing every time I'd walk to the Capitol. I, I I I'd say I I can't believe I work here. And uh, and I have great respect for anybody uh, who sat in that office. Um, I'll never forget the kindness that George W. Bush extended to me and to us in the transition, not because he loved what we had done uh, in the campaign or because he agreed with us, but because he was a trustee of our democracy and, Absolutely. And, uh, and, and, and I think comported himself as such. Uh, but the, the thing is, uh, people, people are who they are. Donald Trump is who he is. Uh, and at, at, at some point, I disagree with you on a lot of the policy stuff. I, don't, I think a lot of his policy has been disastrous, but I accept that in a democracy, he wins and the he gets, 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 gets the— yeah, Exactly. Yeah, but at what point do you say this behavior, this, this sort of absence of, uh, of, 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 of I don't want to say morality, but absence of understanding of that role— Decorum. Decorum, absence of decorum, is just uh, unacceptable. I mean, Republicans well, would face— I, I would say it right now, I, I mean, I think it's unacceptable. I think it's unacceptable on very many levels, uh, That and, and, and is doing real damage to him, to the country, and, and, and to the things that he and I jointly believe would be best for the country. Uh, and that's why I'm not shy about saying it on a repeated basis, and we'll continue to say it. I'm— uh, I'm not sure he's going to listen. And, and do you think and, more people will walk away as some of the Republicans did in uh, in the in Virginia and Alabama and so on? I, I don't have any doubt that this will have electoral consequences, and uh, it, it can be overcome in part by success. Obviously, they they pass this tax bill and it does what you know the Republicans hope to do. If it does, uh, and you know the economy, which is chugging away pretty well right now, thanks in part to some of the regulatory relief that that the president has put in place uh so it could be overcome by that but if people are not feeling good about their president and about the country it is going to have as we saw it, it, it roy jones got roy, roy jones, moore roy moore i got i, I knew roy moore and, yeah, and roy, doug, doug jones, jones. Yes. doug jones got as almost as many votes as hillary clinton got in, in, in a presidential in a presidential year, and 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 Roy Moore got half of what Donald Trump got. That means a lot of folks stayed home on the Republican side, and and that's that's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. Where moderate Republicans and even you know he did well among evangelical conservatives, but how many showed up? So the ones that showed up voted, but how many didn't show up? And if you look at some of those counties, a lot of folks didn't show up, 
And I think part of it was because of Moore's personal issues. Uh, but it just goes to show you that character issues matter to a lot of people. And and they mattered about Roy Moore, and they will matter about Donald Trump. I, I noticed uh, in just reading about you uh, that um, we have this thing in common in that uh, we're both the sons of immigrants, yours from Italy, mine from Eastern Europe. And my dad was a psychologist at the VA. No way. And so, and I, did I not know saw that. that you started. Uh, my dad was a psychologist at a VA, actually worked. Uh, 12 years in Chicago. Yeah, I saw that? that. Yes, I saw that. Yeah. You, um, uh, now I'm from New York originally, so my dad Oh, I tie be, you to Chicago no, for I, obvious I've reasons. Been there, I've been there so long that yeah. everybody assumes that, and I yeah. I welcome that. But um, uh, but tell me a little bit about that. You, you, was your dad in the service? He was. Uh, yeah. yeah, he came over when he was seven years old, and um, he, um, he spent the first seven years of his life in Mussolini's Italy. Uh, and uh, uh, didn't have very fond memories from that, but came over. Uh, my grandfather was a coal miner and came over to the uh, hills, the coal fields of western Pennsylvania, and uh, lived there, grew up there. Uh, and um, and then when the war came around, uh, he was 18. He was born in 1930, so it gives you an idea. He was, you know, 22 or whatever it was. No, excuse me, 1930. So, wait, yeah, he, 1923, excuse yeah, me. Right. He came over in 1930. He was born in 1923. So, mm. you know, he was 18 when the war when the war started. And uh, and so he, um, he enlisted and uh, was in the uh, Army Air Corps, was moved from one assignment to another assignment. He basically worked on airplanes uh, after trying two or three other things that they trained him for, and then they realized they didn't need anybody, so they trained him for something else. And he has he tells a pretty funny story about all the different things he was trained for that he never had to do because they find out they didn't need that, so they trained him for something else. But the efficiency of the Defense Department was no better in the 1940s <laughs> than it was here uh, today. Well, they, they beat fascism. you got to give them <laughs> they, that. They give them, oh, no, they did a heck of a job. But, you know, he, uh, uh, his, uh, his, his big story is he was put in the Pacific. Uh, now, whether that was because, you know, he was Italian and was from Italy and they put him in the Pacific Theater, I don't know, but they did. And um, he actually worked on uh, the Enola Gay and was really. Uh, yeah. So he was he was there during that time. Yeah, that was the plane the, that delivered the, the bomb plane that delivered the bomb in, in, in Japan. So, um, yeah. And, uh, you know, he came back and uh, really would not have gone to college, but for the GI Bill and for World War Two and having fought in the war and. Uh, went to a local college, St. Francis College, in in the hills of uh, Western Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and uh, anyway, ended ended up uh, going into um, into psychology and uh, went to work immediately for the v- to the VA. Met my mom at the VA; uh, she was working at the VA, and so she was, was a, a nurse. She was a nurse, and it was the unusual situation. They were both late in life; they got married later in life. Um, you know, they were. Uh, my dad was in his late thirties, and my mom was a couple years older than my dad, and in, in her late thirties, and. Um, it was always an odd situation that my mom, they worked at the same hospital and my mom was always the senior person. She was, uh, she had, she made more money and had a, uh, a higher title. Now in the 1950s, that is a yeah, unusual. very unusual yeah. thing. And, and so I always get a kick out of the fact that people, you know, look at me and say, Oh, you don't know what it's, you know, you, you have these traditional views of, of, of family and, and, uh, and women in the workplace. And I said, well, you, I, you, you don't know <laughs> what, of what you speak, uh, because I grew up in a home where neither of my parents, I mean, I, well, it's interesting. I, you know, the reason we're home, uh, you know, what you, you know, you're a font of controversial quotes uh and you know one of them was about uh, radical feminism mm-hmm. and a, 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 
socially aff- uh, bad, uh, this culture of socially affirming uh, women uh, who work outside the home. Uh, what? Yeah, yeah, my point there was that we need a culture that doesn't doesn't pick one side or the other and say, "We'll just affirm you if you're this." And I, I said that because you know, I my wife. Uh, who we've been married for 27 years. Karen, it was a neonatal intensive care nurse for nine years. Uh, she saw all sorts of medical ethics issues. And so she got interested in the law and, and decided to go to law school and would put herself through law school. And, um, and she always commented because she decided to stay home and, and raise children that she always felt when she was in the circles that I traveled in, in politics, and, you know, you'd go to the fundraising events or everything else, and, of course, she would be there, and they'd say, oh, you know, what do you do? And, uh, and you know, she'd say, well, I'm home raising kids, and all of a sudden, there was this deathly silence, yeah. and it was like, you know, well, let's move on and talk to somebody else who's interesting, right? Yeah. And and so she's – I won't say she had a chip on her shoulder, but she always felt like she was not given the same kind of respect – uh, that she would have, and it's been a, and you know, it's it's been an issue, uh, you know, for her. So, yeah. You know, I gave this up. I gave up the affirmation of my, you know, of the world and of my colleagues. Now she wouldn't trade it for the world, but it doesn't make it any easier than when you're out in the cocktail party or you're out even at the baseball game and someone asks you what you do and and you know, right. well, I'm a broker for this or I'm a lawyer at this right. and I'm a mom and then you don't get, oh, that's great. You know, what do you do? And and, get, yeah. and so that's what the- No, I'm the, really, listen, I'm really sensitive to this because my, you know, as you know, and we'll talk about this, another thing we share is uh, uh, children who uh, deal with uh, special mm-hmm. special needs kids yeah. um, uh, who have special needs uh, and uh, the way our lives evolved our, our daughter arrived she had seizures from the time she was seven mm-hmm. months old and then my son came 19 months later and they needed you know they needed her Care. and yeah. uh, uh, they probably needed me more than I Gave Amen. to be honest with yeah, you, I, I, and uh, guilty as and she, uh, for me. And, but she filled that for both of us in yeah. many ways, and um, but experienced the same thing. I mean, she had a master's degree in business, but um, but she stayed home to hold our family together and minister to my daughter's many needs and the other kids, and uh, and you know it's an uncomfortable thing to to to. You, and so I always, um, you know, I learned to ask people if they worked outside the home mm-hmm. uh, because she worked harder than anybody yeah, I, I know. And um, so I, I'm sympathetic to that. But that's the kind of discussion that. Yeah, you is, take a quote like that. Right. And, and it looks like, oh, you know, Santorum wants women to be barefoot. And well, when you add home. the frame, when you add the phrase radical feminism, right. that's a little it, it provocative. A, of course. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I made that in my provocative years. And, uh, but it, it was to drive home the point that there needs to be and, and there needs to be room for both. There needs to be room mm-hmm. for really giving women choice, real choices right. and affirming the choice, affirming the decision when or what the decision is, and not to not to bias it one way or the other. And right. that that uh, that I don't think that's in my my mind. That's why I called it radical feminism, not just feminism. I wasn't cri- I wasn't critiquing feminism. I was saying those who who only see feminism as 
you know, you have to do this to be to be a real woman as opposed to you have to honor women and the yeah. choices they I mean, make. And, you know, I think the, 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 the reason uh, that that culture evolved in part was because, you know, when I was growing up, I'm a few years older than you. Uh, uh, not many, I bet. But uh, we, we – uh, uh, you've got a full head of hair, so that probably no, that, that, that doesn't come advantage. with age. Sometimes that, that's uh, different, but, different things. But um, but you know, I mean, then and now, I mean, there have been barriers to entry for women sure. that are significant and uh, and a lo- and a real loss. You know, uh, so I think back to the '60s, and uh, almost all my teachers were women, mm-hmm. brilliant capable people who frankly made a huge difference in my lives in my life but um were teaching in part because that was what was available was available so um in any case so you you so you uh you grew up mostly in pennsylvania yep spent a year in illinois i did went to mount carmel is that right i went to carmel carmel different different very different yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Up in north of Chicago, and then you went to Penn State. I did. Yeah, and uh, you weren't a particularly. You've, you're now known for uh, your 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 faith and and your advocacy around it and so on, but that wasn't. No. You were a much more secular figure. Absolutely. Then. Yeah. Well, look, I always, I never, I can't say I ever walked away from my Catholic faith, but I certainly was not actively practicing it and it was not a, an important part of my life when I was in college. And what about your family? Was it stressed by your parents and so on? Yeah, I mean, we went to church every Sunday. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was that was just, you, you went to church. And, uh, you know, I was an altar boy. Uh, you know, I participated in, uh, as a kid, but, you know, when, when I got out of, uh, out of high school and went to college, um, you know, I just got full of all the things you get full of when you go to college. And that's a lot of beer, nice <laughs> beer a lot of beer, a lot of other yeah. things. And, uh, and, you know, and, and sort of drifted away. I didn't really find a circle of friends who were, who were engaged and involved in, um, in, in, in the faith and, and any faith to that matter. And, and so you just sort of ran with the pack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so my life went like that for probably, yeah, I went to grad school right after that, went to the University of Pittsburgh and got a master's degree, uh, in business. And then I uh, went to work for a, um, as a chief of staff for a democratic staff for, for a Republican state Senator in, in Harrisburg. Uh, well, let me, let me stop you there. Yeah. How did this political, I, I want to get back to the faith journey, yeah, yeah. but how did, how did the political, um, the political orientation began. Yeah, you know, it was because uh, it wasn't a big thing in your home, right? You it was. Oh, my! Yeah, my my dad never voted until the 1980s. Uh, my uh, my mom voted. She was a Republican, but we never ever ever talked politics. Mm-hmm. And and um, but I was always interested. I I liked elections. I found that be exciting. Um, you also like to debate. I, I, I saw somewhere that your friends called you rooster, rooster, yeah, because you always were up for. A, well, I was, a yeah, fight. I was, I was, uh, I was a feisty kind of guy, I uh-huh. guess, and um, and so I, uh, you know, I went to college, and uh, you know, I liked elections, and and so I thought I'd take a political science course, not knowing anything. As freshman in college, I just took an entry level that, and one of the things that required was that you had to work in a campaign. And so I went down to, uh, to the Republican headquarters notionally because they gave me a list of all the candidates that were up for election in 1976. 
And I didn't like either of the presidential candidates that year. And uh, the two Senate candidates, the one guy was from my hometown, was from Pittsburgh, and I knew his name. And so I thought, oh, I'll go work for him. And uh, I he should was, stop and note that the two presidential campaign the candidates that you were Ronald Reagan and Gerald Ford. No, no, Ford, no, no, no. Gerald seventy six. Carter and Ford. Oh, you're about the general election. The general election. I thought you were about the primary. No, no, no. This was oh, the fall of nineteen seventy six. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was. So it was Reagan. Excuse me. It was Car- Carter versus Ford, and I just neither of them mm-hmm. motivated me to get involved. And and Hines was a local Pittsburgh guy, and uh, I'd known him and seen his seen his face for years. And so I thought and I'll, probably I'll go help used him. his ketchup and mustard. I used too. his ketchup. I'm yeah. a big Hines ketchup fan, and so I I, I went and, and showed up. And here's what I learned in politics. Uh, Politics is all about showing up. It's mm-hmm. all about being there and doing the work. And I, I would show, you know, there were lots of people signed up to help different campaigns at the Republican Party, but I was the only one showed up every day and looked up the phone numbers, literally looked up phone numbers and, uh, you know, uh, and put them on the street list and, you know, matched all the basic things that, that, that you did it back then, you know, 40 years ago. And, um, and one day the guy who ran the Heinz students for Heinz campaign across the state showed up. Uh, at the headquarters, I happened to be there and they say, Hey, we're looking for someone that could, you know, run the effort here. And so the County chairman walked out and said, this guy shows up, bring him in. And so all of a sudden I'm president of the students for Heinz at the Penn and State. Did you campus. have any contact with the Senator himself? None, none yeah. whatsoever. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, just on that point, uh, he died tragically he in, a, in a helicopter I, crash. The interesting thing is, uh, I ended up getting elected to his House seat because he was a House member, and then I took his seat in the Senate uh, after he died. Not immediately, but subsequently to that. Uh, he was a, kind of your quintessential sort of moderate Pennsylvania Republican. moderate Republican, yeah. I mean, and there was a whole there were the, there were a slew of those Hughes kind Scott, of guys in yeah, the Senate. Yeah, uh, of most of them from the Northeast, yep. Upper Midwest, uh, Upper Midwest. Uh, could he? Could Heinz have uh, been elected in the Republican Party of today? Could he have been nominated in the Republican Party of today? Probably not. Uh, although, I mean, you look at someone, for example, like a Tom Ridge, uh, and Tom Ridge probably fit the mold of a John Hines, former uh, governor. Yeah, former but governor. Th- that's that was go- the ninety. That was the 90s. And, and, and and governors' races are a little bit different. Less than ideological, races. a little less ideological. You look at a guy like Rick Snyder in Michigan, not really an ideologue. No. Uh, no, they're, you're right. I mean, the governors are you know, more of, of a manager as opposed mm-hmm. to a, as opposed to a vote yeah. uh, where that that rallies people. But no, I would say that's probably true of Republicans in the North and Democrats in the South. Mm-hmm. That you know the, that up until the 1980s, uh, the parties were yes, they were ideological. The Democratic Party was 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 a liberal party. Mm-hmm. But it was tempered. I mean, it was tempered by a whole bunch of Democrats who were in the party who weren't liberals. And so the, and party, the reverse was true. The party well. was constrained. And the same was true with Republicans. Republicans, you know, certainly became a much more conservative party. Uh, but uh, we, they were constrained also by the fact that you had, you know, a third of the United States Senate were moderate Republicans. You know, with, it was, so tell me if you think that that was uh, good or bad. I mean, we're in a situation now where they're really – you have two parties, and there's not a whole lot of kind of uh, cross-pollination. Well, the Republican and Democratic Party were regional parties based upon the Civil War. And, uh, and so you had, uh, you had moderate and conservative Republicans or liberal Republicans, and you had the same thing within the Democratic Party. The realignment came, 
And, and when the realignment came, things got harder in Washington because people didn't talk to each other anymore. You know, some of the best Republican friends that uh, that, you know, moderate Republicans had were Democrats and, and vice versa with best, you know, some of the Democrats best. Could, and and because you had friends who were of of a different policy stripe than you within your own party and you built relationships with them because they were your colleagues and in, in, in the same party. There was more dialogue. There was more cooperation now. And, and it was when a bill came up, if it was an ideological divide in the bill. It didn't clearly benefit one party or the other. There was always there was always the politics you had to consider within your own party if you went out and just scorched mm-hmm. earth the left because you're scorched earthing some of your own people. That's gone. Uh, now there is hegemony, frankly, in both parties. And that has meant isolation. Uh, members are not as friendly to each other on the other side of the aisle because there's there's no party commonality and there's no policy commonality. And, uh, you there's know, there's also it, no, but, but uh, there's no, uh, sort of community either because uh, it, you, I know you lived in, was controversial in your state, but, but understandable from a family yeah. standpoint, you, your family lived here and increasingly that's not the case. It used to be that most members of particularly the Senate. Yeah, because it's transportation. I mean, you just couldn't here. get back and forth that easily, right? And when you came to Washington, you had to stay because you didn't have, you couldn't hop on a plane when you wanted to and you didn't have the frequency of, uh, and, and the ease of air travel. And and it's also good for families. It too. is. Look, I, we, I, I didn't move my family to Washington when I was in the house because I, because the schedule was a lot lighter. You know, they're in really a couple nights a week. And the Senate, I mean, it's a slog. I mean, you're in, you know, three, four, five, sometimes the whole week and the weekend. And and uh, and unlike a house district, which is mine, was fairly compact around the city of Pittsburgh, I'd go home and I could be at home and go out into my district. When I went home. I had to cover the entire state of Pennsylvania, so right. which is a big state, hard to cover. So, so if you went home, if you I wanted would be to see my your family, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't see my family even when I was home. So to me, this was uh, it was a tough decision because I didn't want to leave my 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 hometown, but at the same time, it wasn't because I wanted to be a father and a husband, and I couldn't be. And and the other issue is, I mean, you you see all these you know sexual harassment, sex scandals. I mean, if you're not around. Yeah. If, if you're if you're out every night with the guys, mm-hmm. you know stuff happens. Stuff happens, yeah. and and stuff not, that you may both say not acceptable stuff. But not stuff acceptable happens. stuff happens, and yeah. so I just I never got into that. I mean, I when you know I I scheduled myself to five or six o'clock, and if I had a fundraiser or a party dinner or something to go to, I'd do that. But I'd go home, mm-hmm. and but the, uh, the, happy the, to do the, it. The too. ancillary benefit of that when when there were a large number of people who lived here is that you weren't just you weren't just colleagues on the floor yep. of the House or Senate, but you also were neighbors. You also had activities yep. in which your kids participated. And, and part of the other thing was travel. I mean, there was there was now we have such onerous restrictions uh, in the sense that you know people say, "Oh, he's jet setting around the world on the taxpayer dollars." Well, a lot of that jet setting was you know you got you went with a whole group of other colleagues you yeah. got to know them and you got yeah. to interact yeah. so th- a lot of the ethics reforms well intentioned as they are do limit the ability yeah. for members to interact and and develop that personal relationship so in a sense you, you can look at that you can look at television on the floor of the house and senate uh, has you know created show show dogs and and playing to the crowd instead of 
having serious debate. I mean, there's no serious debate that goes on on the floor of the House or Senate. It's just everybody looking up at the camera, speaking to the folks back home. And so uh, there's just a whole variety of things that just made it harder for people to get along. Yeah. You you know, I I, I really appreciate what you're saying, as I appreciate sharing a panel from time to time with you on TV because you have a, a perspe- the perspective of experience. I'd be remiss if I didn't say you were a pretty scorched earth kind oh, yeah. of guy yeah, when you absolutely. were in the, the Congress. You came in 94. I mean, the, 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 uh, the uh, well, let, let me just take a short break because this will be a longer conversation. <laughs> and Lucy, my engineer over here, is signaling me that it's a time to take a break. And we'll be right back with Rick Santorum. When you came to that, did you come in 94? To the Senate. Oh, to the Senate. To the House of 90. Right. But, you know, Newt Gingrich, uh, who, with whom you worked closely, uh, one of the sort of, for better and worse, one of his insights was to, and in fact, I think I did a, a, a podcast the other day with Ed Gillespie, and he was recalling this, mm-hmm. was this, uh, the notion that these one-minute statements would get on C-SPAN, yeah. and you can actually, you yeah. could you could make news, even if you weren't making progress or making legislation, you could make this 6 o'clock news back home yep. uh, and score some points, and that became a seductive thing and a kind of a weapon for partisanization mm-hmm. Uh, and so on. And I, my guess is you availed yourself of that. I did. Yeah, I would do one minutes and um, but I did a whole bunch of different things. I mean, it, it, when when I came to the uh, the house and back in 1991, um, I mean, I saw the Republican Party as sort of a beaten minority and in the Congress uh, and that everything was focused on we got to win the presidency and and whatever we can, you know and the president will get whatever he can done but mm-hmm. the chance George H.W. Bush was president he was president at the time mm-hmm. we have the president but as far as any any kind of innovation or any kind of ideas or or just any kind of activity was just foreign to that group they were they were a, a very uh dominated minority they'd been in the minority for th- over almost 40 years by the time I got mm-hmm. there. And there was just no hope that they would ever have any responsibility to govern. And so what I saw was, you know, I, I went on the budget committee. And I thought, well, you know, budget's a big problem. So we got it. But, you know, our head of the budget committee said, no, we're not going to propose a budget. Well, why, why would we do that? All they'll do is criticize us. Well, don't you want to talk about what your priorities? Well, why would I do that? Let's just criticize them. And so I just thought, as, you know, that's not what I came here for. I didn't come here just say no. I came here to try to do something. And uh, and so I I guess I was, you know, I was 32 years old. I mean, you, you know, too many guys who get into the United States Congress at the age of 32 having never been in office before. Uh, and so it was a sort of a miracle race to win. And and I went there figuring I was probably only going to have one term and that was going to be out of politics because um, when I decided to run for the for the Congress, um, the uh, the head of the state house, who was a Republican in Pennsylvania, this was again 1990, two yeah. years before redistricting, uh, came to me and said, you know, look, there's an open house seat now in your district, in your in your area. Uh, we want you to run for that. And I said, well, I've been running for Congress. No, no, you've been doing a good job. We've really you, you've we've seen you. We've been impressed by you, and we like. And but you're not going to win that because you're up against a 14 year incumbent, and there's no way you're going to win. Remind me who you were running against. A guy named Doug Walgren. Mm-hmm. It was um, you know, uh, sort of your run of the mill. 
Democrat. I mean, it wasn't anything bad or, you know, or good about him as far as I could see. He's just sort of a, uh, you know, decent guy. And uh, so there wasn't anything bad or good about him so far as you can see, but probably you put emphasize the bad. Oh, absolutely. Of course. (laughs) Well, this is a campaign, right? (laughs) Uh, And so, you know, we talked about him voting for a tax increase and voting for a pay raise and all the things that you would run a campaign on. Right. And uh, but not necessarily things that would be winning. In fact, they voted for pay raises and a a tax increase, the George Bush tax increase and and Democrats picked up seats that year. Uh, And so but it happened to be effective. And and, but the bottom line is that the uh, the leader of the House came to me and basically said, uh, look, you either run for the state house or even if you win the seat, which you're not, you'll lose. I said, what's that mean? He said, well, I'll, I'll take you out in redistricting. So we're going to lose two seats. I guarantee you, if you don't run for this house seat, state house seat, uh, I'll take you, I'll take your seat away from you. I said, okay, fine. Do you, you know, go for it. And so I, I said, I'm not running. I'm going to run for Congress. I got elected and they took my seat away. And so I knew very early on that I was going to be running in probably, as it turned out, like a, almost close to 70% Democratic registered district in, in Pittsburgh. And, you know, the chances of me getting reelected were probably not very high. So I went in there with the idea and that maybe established my persona a little bit that I got two years to try to make an impact, and uh, and so I, you know, which is hard for a freshman. It to is, do. and but I, I had some pretty sharp elbows. Uh, I I don't doubt, and we went after something that was non ideological, and come back to that point, which is, uh, I mean, I was a conservative, but again, not. I, I wouldn't have considered myself, and no one knew me would have considered myself really ideological. Wasn't driven by faith uh, very much at that point in time of my life, and um, and so. Uh, you know, I went in there and, and went after what I thought was a problem, which was corruption and uh, the House banking scandal. Mm-hmm. And um, and so I uh, joined with John Boehner, uh, name fairly familiar to your listeners, mm-hmm. a guy named Jim Nussel, who, you know, became the director of OMB and as and and uh, and, a, and a handful of other congressmen. And we decided we we saw this check bouncing scandal. It's just, you know, people writing checks. They didn't have money in their accounts to cover. And it and it was not just a, it was not a Democrat. It was Republicans and Democrats right. were doing it. And I remember, uh, you know, re- hearing about this and, and deciding, well, you know, what's this all about? Investigate it and say, oh, yeah, they get this report every couple of years and people scream about it and it goes away. And I said, well, it's not going away under my watch. And it just doesn't seem like the right thing to do. And so we pursued it. And. Yeah, which probably doesn't, if you're a it freshman, ingratiate me, yourself no, to people. No, among who, who, anybody. Because I mean, it was the way business was done. That's the way business was done. And Republicans and Democrats both threatened me and said, you know, every, so it was this, again, it was not a partisan attack. But in the end, um, we not only uncovered that scandal, but we uncovered a post office scandal. Right. I remember because we, we, we lost a representative from Chicago in that. Which ensnared the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, who was uh, who was from Chicago, uh, Dan, Dan, Dan Rostinkowski, yeah. who was maybe the most powerful man on Capitol Hill mm-hmm. at the time. And uh, I, if I can tell a Rosty story, yeah, if that's sure. okay. Uh, so I got um, I got appointed to the Ways and Means Committee when I got reelected. And so we're in the midst of this investigation, and, and John Bader and I really are driving it. And I get on his committee, and, uh, and I'm – going after him. And so um, I, I'm sitting, you know, way down at the end of the, end of the dais and everything. And, um, and when it came to my turn, you know, there was always this pause. And, you know, I, <laughs> he was sending a message even mm-hmm. in just, you know, bringing me on. Yeah. Um, and I pursued it. 
for a period of months and um, to cut to the sh- chase, uh, I get a I get a report from C- uh, CNN actually uh, saying that that you know indictment's going to be handed down tonight and well they'd like me on TV and so I went on TV on CNN and uh, was uh, was asked all these questions about the indictment and what's going to happen and what what, what went wrong. Uh, I did the whole thing and 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 uh, finished the interview. We get called for a vote, so I hurry back to the hill, get you know, uh, get on an elevator, come up the elevator, uh, and as that elevator door opens to the hallway leading into the house, on opposite elevator opens, and who walks out? It's Dan Rostenkowski, an imposing figure. He's what six four? Yeah, six, he's a big man, two hundred eighty pounds. I mean, yeah. he's a big guy, yeah. much bigger than me, and I'm not a small guy, and. And so I walk right into him and we turn and walk and, and I'm walking shoulder to shoulder with him. And he looks over me and says, I just saw you on TV. <laughs> I said, uh, yes, sir, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I said, I just want you to know, I said, it was, it's not personal. And he just said, uh, we got up the steps and we're now on the floor of the house. And he's st- we're standing there in, in, in the middle of the, of the aisle. And he says, I just want you to know, he said, um, I want to thank you. And I said, how's that? He said, I've watched you through this whole process. He said, and you've always treated me fairly. And I said, well, Mr. Chairman, I said, I have absolutely nothing against you as a person. In fact, I think you've always treated me well. I said, but I just felt like I was doing what I thought was the right thing to do. He said, yeah, I understand that. And that was it. Yeah, you know, I, I believe that because he also said there was a reporter in Chicago who did a lot of work on this, Chuck Neubauer, really mm-hmm. a superb uh, investigative reporter. And Rostenkowski uh, said the same thing uh, to him. And I, I can attest to the fact, having been a reporter in Chicago, that, um, you know, he didn't always he didn't always deal with these things in quite that in quite that way. Um, do you look back? At your tenure, I mean, I look at the quotes, and I want to go back. I really do want to get back to the the sort of the rest of your journey. But you know, um, uh, from uh, Alan Simpson, uh, a lot, it called you a lot tougher than Gingrich to deal with Bob Kerry Santorum. Famous quote: "Is that Latin for asshole?" Yeah, Kerry uh, apologized to me for that, by the way, <laughs> but it still sticks out there. Actually, but it's funny because Kerry and I actually had a pretty good relationship. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I mean, the point is that you are a very, um, y- you know, y- when people think about the sort of polarity of our politics, yeah. you were very much yeah, part of that. Here's, I, here's what I would say. Yes, I was. Uh, I, I, I had no doubt. I had very sharp elbows. I use that term. And, and I, uh, I mean, did you have was, any regrets aggr- about how you dealt with stuff? Yeah, there's absolutely. I mean, there's there's certain comments I made uh, that were flippant, uh, that were you know off the cuff in a way that was maybe tried to be cute or tried to be uh, you know tried whatever whatever I was whatever uh, and that I wish I had not said the way I said them because I know that people were hurt by them and and I think it gave people an impression of me that you know hurt me uh, in in their eyes because I don't I don't think. Uh, what the, the most common comment I get from people 
after I get a chance to spend time, I say, boy, you're nothing like I thought you would be. Yeah. And that's my fault. I mean, I, 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 take bl- I take complete responsibility for that. And, and you know, you, you, when you're dealing with a media that is generally hostile to people who think like I do, you're not gonna, don't, they're not going to give you the benefit of the doubt that they're going to give a Joe Biden if he happens to say something that maybe isn't the best thing to say. And, and they're going to report it, and they're not going to report it in a way that's going to be very nice. And, and I knew that. I should have known better to do those things. I can blame it on the fact that I was, you know, 32 when I came to the House and 36 when I came to the Senate. But you know what? That's you weren't 22. I mean, so uh, and it's also true that there was political currency in being a galvanizing yeah, figure. Yeah, probably I mean, you less. A, you probably, be- probably less so then than now. Yeah. I think now there's a lot more currency in in doing that. I was I was a little bit. I was I, in, in some respects, you can say I, I may may have led led the charge. I mean, I remember you know Robert Byrd would always excoriate me for being you know for being you know talking like I was in a bar, um, and and so I, I again I, I I take full responsibility for all that and 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 some of the things I I don't regret having said, but a lot of them I do, and, and not what I said, but how I said it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that matters. And, and, I, and I get that. And so, you know, it, for me, uh, part, of, part of what arced me in a different direction uh, was the faith journey. And the second thing is, even through all those times, one of the things that, uh, uh, that I felt was that you, you have a responsibility uh, to, to be there, not to just advance whatever cause you want to actually get something done. And, and so while people will say, you know, I was bombastic or controversial, I think if you look at the record of things that I actually accomplished uh, in a bipartisan way, it's actually a fairly long and impressive list. And, and, uh, and part of that was, in spite of the bombast, uh, I take the example of Barbara Boxer and me. I mean, Barbara Boxer and I are probably former senator from California is, far away politically as you can possibly get. And we had some truly epic confrontations on the floor of the Senate on the issue of abortion. More than one, literally dozens. And and some are legion on both sides for one reason Mm -hmm. or the other. But I I, I actually worked on three or four different bills that we sponsored together and got passed. Uh, While we were having these very, uh, very strident debates, we were working on other subject areas where we found common ground, and and to me that that is that's a, that's what's missing in my opinion is that you can have good strong principled even you know fiery debates, but it's not personal, and it, and 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 you have to understand that we're both there to try to do something we think is in the best interest of the country. And you've got to look for those things. You've got to find those opportunities because it's your responsibility to, to try to move the ball forward. And you can't get it done in this town 95% of the time without doing it with someone on the other side. Yeah. I mean, what you find now though, is that there's a penalty to be paid uh, within the base of the that's parties the difference. to uh, that's the difference to do that yeah that's the, that's the difference that uh, that that has happened over the past twenty five years when I was doing compromise bills with Barbara Boxer on um, you know uh, dolphin safe tuna for example uh, 
today that would be seen as, you know, well, maybe not that. But there would be other things that we would work on that uh, that would be seen. You know, I worked with Hillary Clinton on uh, on on pornography. Uh, and the fact that you would work with I, someone, I presume like you that. were opposed. <laughs> yeah, we yeah. were both opposed yeah. to that, and yeah. and so, but it was you know for, in the public library. Yes. Uh-huh. So so is there were opportunities to, to work if together you look for them. if you look for them and, and but yeah, but but, but today but, if yeah. you do that, then you know you're a sellout, mm-hmm. and 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 that's just wrong. It's just wrong. It's 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 counterproductive to. Um, uh, to making our institutions work. And, and people are so concerned about the failure of our institutions to function correctly. And part of it is driven by the, the demand for purity on both sides of the aisle. So talk about this faith journey. Yeah. Because you, 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 you and your wife went, have, have taken that journey. Yeah, we have together. Together. Uh, it really was when I got married, we sort of started on that journey. We got married and, um, you know, ne- neither of us were, you know, I would say, you know, particularly strong Catholics at the time. Uh, she probably was in better shape than I was in many respects. But uh, we got married, and, you know, when you get married, it's you sort of sit back, and, and particularly we got pregnant within like three or four months after uh, after we got married, and all of a sudden now you got, hey, you got a kid coming, and you know, it's sort of time to grow up. Now, I was running for Congress at the time, but but still it was from a, from a standpoint of your own personal behavior and your personal uh, morals and ethics it's just time to you know now you now you've got to set an example you know now you've got to form the next generation and you've got you have that responsibility that to me was very heavy for both of for both of Karen and, and, and me and and so we decided you know to to get more engaged and, and involved in our faith community and uh, and and you know just uh, not just the church itself, but outside the church and reading. And and so we, we sort of went on this journey for a little bit, but it really wasn't until I came to the United States Senate because my first four years of Congress, I mean, I was just, I mean, I was running uh, and then, you know, I got elected and I knew I was going to be in this new district that was a horrible district that no one gave me a chance to. So I just, I was just a maniac. I mean, I just went everywhere, did everything. And we had two little babies at the time. And then, um, so I won re-election, decided shortly after that, that I probably wouldn't survive in that district for very long. It would take one bad year and you know, no matter what my favorite, and by the way, I got 63%, a 70% registered democratic district, but I knew that over time, you know, votes would catch up with you. And cause I was pretty conservative and, um, uh, I thought I could move the district, and as you see now, Western Pennsylvania has moved dramatically, and and a lot of those voters now vote continually Republican, and I was probably the first one they voted for, but now I'm probably you know mm-hmm. the norm for what they vote for. Uh, but I decided to, to take a crack at a at a Senate race, and and you know that you run for the Senate and you're in the House. I mean, I was I was a maniac, mm-hmm. and it really wasn't after that intense period of time that. Um, I got elected. I had a six-year term. I moved my family down, and life began to have a rhythm to it again, uh, where I was a normal person. And I think part of the the things that I did, uh, and you know, it's just if you're running at that pace and you're intensely involved and engaged in the battle every day of your life, it's going to come out in the things that you say and do. And so. Um, uh, I think the fact that I did have a six-year term and, you know, about a, several months into my term, um, uh, we went to a church in Northern Virginia where a you know, pastor was just, you know, the priest was just amazing. 
and really spoke to me for the first time. It was the best homily I'd ever heard. And, uh, and it, you know, we got engaged with him and with the, that church and it just started me on a journey. I started going to Bible studies in the Senate, uh, started a men's group where four of us would get together twice, twice a week to sort of be accountable to each other on a personal basis for our faith and for our family and for our, you know, just doing being good not talking about legislation but talking about how we're handling ourselves and are we are we accountable to each other so i'd sort of put things in place to sort of help and and i think that's that certainly that arc has changed who i am um and then you know personal things happen i mean we lost a son and that which was, was a, which was 1996 yes, uh, and uh that was devastating and and you know you were already deeply well let, let's take a break here okay, and sure. come back because this is too important a discussion to to uh, bifurcate yeah you, you your son uh gabriel yes uh you you had known when your wife was pregnant that your son had um we found out about halfway through pregnancy and um and it was had a a, a, a genetic a, a defect gene- yeah. had a defect yeah and uh, we we uh it was during the you know we were debating this bill on the floor of the senate the partial birth abortion bill and the debate was all about well we have to keep abortion this procedure legal because women find out late in pregnancy that their child has a defect and they may want to terminate the pregnancy and of course, defect I, being something that could be life threatening. That could the be life threatening. Like could be your a, child, the, the prognosis for your child was very. Yeah, yeah, we were told when we had a routine sonogram halfway through the pregnancy at twenty weeks, and the sonographer just kept going over this one area, and and you know, and we said, so what's going on? She said, well, I can't tell you, and I have to get the doctor, and the doctor comes in. Your and, wife had a medical background, so she must. She said, she. Known. We were all sort of panicked, and we had our three kids in the room because we thought, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to see the oh, baby tough, and yeah. everything, and and the doctor walked in and didn't have the greatest bedside manner. He just basically looked at it and turned to us and said, "Quote: Your son has a fatal defect and is going to die." Hmm. And uh, that was like, you know, you talk about rocking your world. And um, and so it was that battle to try to save his life, which we tried to do. uh, And at some risk to your wife's. Well, the surgery, the surgery itself was not. Well, I guess ultimately it did have a risk to her, but but they had intrauterine surgery uh, up in Philadelphia Mm -hmm. and uh, at the University of Pennsylvania Hospital. And. Um, the surgery actually worked. It was experimental, but it worked. Uh, but she got an infection uh, because of the surgery opens the, the womb up to infection. And, uh, and she, the, the way the body deals with an infection in the, in, the, um, in the amniotic sac, which is where the baby is, is to expel the infection, mm-hmm. right? And so she went into labor. Mm-hmm. And uh, we knew when she had a high temperature three days later, we were very happy for three days. And then she got a high temperature, started going to labor. And um, and the threat to her life at that point is had she not delivered uh, that baby, she she and the baby both would have died. Mm-hmm. And so uh, she ended up delivering the baby, and uh, he was born alive and, and lived uh, two hours uh, mm-hmm. with us, and we held him and uh, and loved him as long as we could. So this, inf- I want to talk about this issue of abortion with which you were. Yeah. And, um, I mean, you're – this to me is such a a, a – a, this is an issue that is hard to have um, a, a kind of reasonable mm-hmm. discussion about 
you you're you believe deeply your faith teaches you that from the moment of conception uh a, a fetus is a life and therefore yeah. any any uh, any uh, not just abortion but you don't believe in birth control either right? well i mean that's just it's a separate issue um I, I, the, my, the issue with, with, with contraception, you know, as taught by the Catholic Church, is that, you know, we, that we should be open to life and that, uh, and that whatever God calls, you know, whatever God wants to give us, we should be open to that. And if we don't want to have children, there are ways other than through contraception to not have children. Unless you're right? raped. Well, obviously, that's, that's a different situation. If there's an assault, that's, that's clearly the case. But—, but Contraception is not, not used for rape, I'm, right? I'm not. This is no way trying to be contentious, but I want clarity on this. Yeah. But you believe also in cases of rape that— uh, Well, that's about abortion, not contraception. Right. right. That's true. Yeah. That's true, yes. Yeah, that's I'm, true. we're talking about contraception. Okay, so, all right. But on, on the contraception side, I mean, you know, the, the position I've always said, my wife and I don't do that, and, and because we wanted to be open for whatever God has, has planned for us, and, and, and you know, we'll accept that, and we'll accept the responsibility and the— and, 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 many cases the burden that comes with that and and we just feel like that that uh, the, you know the church's teaching is is right on this that 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 contraception separates the the act the, the act of love to the the end of that which is for for having children not to say that you can't have sexual sexual relation without having children but th- that's the church's teaching is that they're that they should always be combined and that's that's the best way to do it and it's not just pleasure for pleasure's sake and and so we've you know we we accept that 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 teaching and so we've lived by it and the interesting thing is that at no point in time in my political career have I ever tried to impose that on any uh, on, on any piece of legislation or any any public policy at all uh, but I was criticized fairly heavily for having that point of view from a personal point of view. You know, on birth control. Yeah, on contraception, and and, mm. and I, you know, I find that, you know, I, I find that sort of disturbing, to be honest with you, that uh, that you'd be criticized for having a a position that has been the position for the church for you know a couple thousand years, and and one that is not trying to impose. Uh, that onto anybody else, and so now, the fact that I would speak about, it, I would recommend it. Does that threaten you potentially? Maybe you don't want to have this discussion, but it, but to me, it was it was always sort of a to me a ruse to say, oh, you know, Santorum, he's you know trying to impose contraception. Well, no, I'm actually not. Uh, but uh, but I do believe it's it's something that if you look at what's happened. Since contraception has been, there have been some benefits clearly, and they're, they've been documented. But I think there also has been a, um, a, um, a to me, a, a, a degradation of, of 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 sexual relationships in this country. And I think you're seeing that through a lot of different things that are going on of how how people treat you know treat each other in when it comes to sexual uh, sexual activity. You're seeing it played out here with the sexual uh, sexual sex scandals. Uh- I, I, we could talk longer on the issue of sure. of, 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 of birth control, contraception, but uh, but on the issue of abortion, yeah. um, uh, I raised this issue before. I, that one, one of the things that strikes struck struck me was that I, your your view is absolute. So, like, even in cases of rape, you think? Yeah. So here's here's sort of 
if you just follow the logic of my position, because I actually approach this not from a religious point of view at all. In fact, when I decided to become pro-life, I, you know, I'd never run for office and never really taken a position. I actually worked for a state senator who was pro-choice when I was, uh, when I was, you know, out of, out of graduate school. And, uh, and so I sort of, I presume Heinz was too, probably. Yeah, he was. And and so to me, it wasn't, it wasn't an important issue for me. I mean, I was a young single guy and I never really thought much about it. And, uh, and, but I was told as I decided to run for, for office that this was an important issue and I needed to get, so I went and I talked to some physicians and, uh, they gave me some articles. I had uh, a long dinner and walked through it. And, and to me, to me, this was science and, you know, scientifically a life begins at conception. I don't think, you know, you, it's not a moral decision. It's a, it's a scientific fact. I mean, you have a unique DNA and that, and that unique DNA is fully human and fully alive. So, uh, the question is, when do you want to give that human being, cause it's human life. When do you want to give that human life rights? And, 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 you know, there's all sorts of gradations. Some people say, Never up until the moment the child is born. Some say, well, you know, after this number of weeks or after that number of weeks. But to me, from just using reason and logic, uh, I said, well, you know, I don't think it's proper for the government to draw lines. And, and I certainly respect the liberty of a woman to have the right to do what she wants with her body. But nobody has the right of liberty to, to use that right of liberty to take another life. And so I put the the right to life, which in our Declaration of Independence comes before the right to liberty, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, I put that as a higher right. So that's, that's how I came down. And so I know people say, well, you know, it's a religious belief. Actually, it wasn't. Actually, it was just sort of this makes sense to me. And a society is probably a just society that puts life above liberty. Yeah. The, well, the counter argument you know, sure. uh, which is that uh, is about a woman's right mm-hmm. uh, to make these decisions about uh, their own bodies and about uh, at what stage that that fetus is viable and so on. And uh, and we can get into the scientific <laughs> debate about this, but I'm interested at this, on this issue of, of rape. That seems so. That seems like a harsh position. Yeah, I got this question at a debate in 2012. Uh, I don't know if you remember when that. When you were running but for president. Yeah, I was yeah. running for president in 2012, and I got the question of rape. It was actually a Fox News debate. I think Megyn Kelly asked me this one, and uh, and <clears throat> my answer was, maybe it was Chris Wallace, I don't remember, but um, my answer was this, that recently, at the time, recently, the Supreme Court decided that someone who commits a rape, a you know, violent rape, obviously, rapes are inherently violent, uh, is not subject to the death penalty because it's cruel and unusual punishment. So the rapist is protected by the Constitution, but the child who is the product of the rape is not. And, and that, so a rapist can't be put to death, but a child who did nothing wrong is eligibly put to death. And, and I just... I just find an a inherent inconsistency that the rapist did I, one of the most horrible things you can ever do. And the justice said, we'll protect you. But this little child who, again, did nothing wrong, that child suffers the death penalty if someone decides that they don't want to have that child. And, and I understand that 
that it, it, how difficult I understand all the all the issues of 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 a mother, but I I think we. I think we have to be bigger than that. I think we have to look at yeah. the other person involved. The question is, uh, it goes back to the fundamental question, which is, uh, first of all, what, what, the, what the rights of the mother are, but also what is the status of that fetus. And, and, uh, and that, you know, we can... But these are fraught questions. I, I think anybody who thinks they, they, these are not, easy questions... No, they're, they're, they're very difficult questions. So, look, I, I, I understand... How how people can come down differently on these things, and it's it's you know when does that life becomes a person that we have to respect get, under the constitution? Getting back to our previous discussion, because it is a difficult discussion, doesn't it deserve that discussion that we took to to take? You know, almost there are sort of violent extremist positions. Some you know uh, people who are pro-choice labeled as murderers sometimes murdered as a result mm. of it and there there are vo- you know vocal positions taken on the other side it seems like it cheats the debate uh, out yeah. of its one uh, of the things that i'm most excited about is over the past 20 years since i've really been involved in in the pro life debate uh, the pro life community has has really put its energies into these centers called crisis crisis pregnancy centers where they said look you know we will Take that pregnant woman who we know is is you know isolated in so many cases and and feeling abandoned and feeling misused and and uh, and feeling vulnerable and alone. We'll bring that person in and we will care for her. We will provide support for her, and uh, if she decides to move forward the pregnancy, we will support that pregnancy and care for her and her child, not just through the pregnancy, but afterwards in parenting and nurturing and all those things. And to me, that's that's the positive approach. Instead of, uh, you know, look, I, I, I don't think we should stop trying to change the law, which I believe is unjust, uh, but you can't just sit there and run your protests and, and, as you said, scream at the other side and call them murderers or whatever the case may be. You have to go out and meet the women in society who are abandoned uh, by a by men, parents, friends uh, in, in this very very tr- tragic unwanted pregnancy situation, and so I, I think it, it's underreported. But I can tell you, there are hundreds of these centers around the country, hundreds and hundreds. I've spoken at probably close to a hundred myself, and and I'm very very passionate about being there to serve women and their children, and by the way, fathers, trying to help with father class and parenting. So to me, yes, it's a very contentious debate. But, and a very difficult decision a, for women, right? And look, I, I, look, I mean, I don't think most women who make that decision uh, make it casually. I, I would agree. I, I, I would abortion. agree that most women do not. And and one of the th- again, one of the benefits of these crisis pregnancy centers is if the woman decides to have an abortion, they're there for post-abortive counseling. If if there's any issues that come up and arise with that, so to me, it's about caring for the woman, caring for the child, caring for the family. And if that's what the pro-life movement, I'd like it to be known for. Um, let me ask you just quickly about the Pope. Uh, this particular pope, yeah, um, and because it seems to me that the, the the social gospel that he preaches isn't necessarily consistent with some of your political views, and uh, he's a very controversial figure within the church uh, because of it. Uh, 
what is your evaluation? Yeah, I, I would say that, you know, uh, first off, uh, Pope Francis uh, held my little girl. I, I haven't talked about my daughter, Bella, who's, yes, uh, who's yes. a special needs little girl. And uh, she's nine years old. But a, few, a couple years ago when he came to the United States and was in Philadelphia, um, he, uh, my, my wife and, uh, and my daughter, Bella got a chance to, to meet him and he actually held my daughter. And, and so that How old he, is Bella now? Bella's nine. She mm-hmm. was seven at the time. And, uh, and she can't, she can't walk or talk mm-hmm. and she's not, you know, she's, uh, you know, fairly, you know, people would say profoundly disabled, but to me, she's very able. She's, she's a font of love and happiness in our family. And so we, we are, we just feel so, so blessed to have her. Uh, but so he so he has a special piece of my heart for for the way he he uh, he dealt with my daughter. But look, I, he comes from a uh, a very different perspective and on 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 some issues and and that I you know I find troubling to be very honest with you. It's not that I I disagree with him on the overall arc, which is you know we need to care for our environment. Of course, we need to care for our environment. But that doesn't necessarily seem that we that the church attaches to a particular solution. I don't think that's necessarily the role of the church. I think the role is to say we need to be good stewards of God's creation. Absolutely. And we need to and we need to to to, to look at every decision we make in light of our stewardship of that creation. Mm-hmm. And and same thing with well, it comes care to about, the, care about the immigrant. Children. Yeah, the immigrant, the children, and again, very important thing I mean, for the church. You made a, a compelling case before about how yeah. uh, uh, you, you, you say how uh, children are treated in, in, in utero, uh, but what about who, through no fault of their own, are the product of a rape. What about children who are brought to the country through, like your father was, he came through legal right. immigration, but who are brought through no In fault fact, of had, their own? He had to wait seven years without his father. Understood. So, but, and but, so I, I've said, look, I, I'm for. I mean, I'm not a, opposed to legal immigration. I'm, I'm for immigration. Immigration is an important part of uh, and, uh, and but these future kids of the who, country. Who are not the ones who make the decision. And, and again, I would say. Uh, it's confusing in my mind, conflating what is, according to church teaching, an absolute wrong, which is the taking of an innocent human life in abortion, to a prudential judgment as to how a country deals with its borders. That's a judgment that the country under church teaching is is free to make as long as they're doing it in concert with they're not doing anything Malicious. They're not doing anything that's that's deliberately harmful. But let, let's leave the analogy aside. The principle of kids not being responsible for decisions that their parents made and not being punished for those right. doesn't that seem like a again a, a one we should be able to so, agree on? And I, I would say this: that hopefully we can we can get some agreement. But but the the larger point here is those decisions are judgment decisions they're they're complex they have a lot of you know certain people we should probably should treat this way other people we wouldn't treat this way and it is up for the governmental official and the church has to give leeway to that government official as long as they're doing it consistent with the teachings of the church which is you know that we welcome the stranger and that we we try to care for people but at the same time we can't welcome everybody and and i don't think any church teaches that you have to have an open border and everybody can come in and and uh, nations have borders and they have boundaries and it's a judgment call as to what those are yeah we do and and i and i don't think anywhere in the church is teaching saying that countries can't have borders and protect those borders so so there's the the problem I have with the Pope is that he takes issues that are of judgment 
and and turns them into the same order of absolutes. And I just think that's that's just not not correct teaching. And well, and and I don't I don't blame him. And in fact, I admire him for his concern about immigrants. I admire him for his concern about the environment. I think those are important issues, and I think those are issues the church has every and the right poor. to express. And the poor, you know, look, you're, you're talking to someone who. Uh, when I when I uh, when I ran in 2006 for re-election, David Brooks wrote an article uh, uh, and said, you know, that uh, that every major poverty issue that has been advanced in the last 16 years was led by me, uh, and that's true. I mean, I I took the responsibility of caring. For, I hired nine people off the welfare rolls. I took the responsibility of caring for the poor, not just my own life and personally, but also as, as, as in public and in public policy, and so. I I I I take all of the teachings of the church seriously and I take my responsibility as a public servant to care for to to be concerned about all you know everybody in society also very seriously but that doesn't mean that I have to agree necessarily with a particular prescription of how to do that on the area of health care yeah. you know we both have uh, children who had significant health yeah. needs and um you know everything I think about in, well, a lot of what I think about in life, but everything I think about in healthcare, very much flows from that experience. Yeah. When I almost went bankrupt trying to take care of my kid, I know the feeling. Uh, so, um, shouldn't people be able to get healthcare when when they need it? Uh, yes, and you know, if you, you may not remember, but way back when, back in the mid nineties. Uh, I actually offered a uh, piece of legislation which was condemned by some of them, like Cato and some of the more conservative groups, as you know, big government. You know, Rick Santorum. I believe it or not, I'm known by some conservatives these days as a big government conservative. That shows well, you how far we've gone. Yeah, really, because I, what I proposed is that we should provide the same tax treatment for those who don't have employer provided insurance that those who do. In other words, that we're going to give people support if you want to call premium support or whatever the case may be, but give them a tax credit that they could use to go out and buy insurance to help underwrite the cost of private insurance. That was 20 years ago. And, oh, it costs too much money, and, oh, you're going to blow a hole in the budget. I said, Refundable even for for the working poor? I don't know whether it was refundable or not, but – but I certainly. In other words, I we're getting into the weeds. I, cer- I mean, I certainly would have no problem with with it being refundable. But the idea would be to make sure that everybody is treated the same, and people who have employer provided insurance get a huge tax benefit, and those who don't don't. And that to me just was indefensible. Yet I couldn't get my colleagues on the conservative. The, inter- the interesting, the guy in the house that authored it with was Dick Army, who again. Back then was considered, you know, there was nobody tougher than Dick Army as a conservative. But here's two iconic conservatives, if you will, who offered this. And, you know, we couldn't get the attention of of of, uh, of the Republican Party to move forward. The reason I asked you is because, you know, you were just recently involved in an effort to repeal the yeah, Affordable Care yeah. Act, which, you know, obviously I was on the other side of yep. that discussion. But... Um, by most, by almost all accounts, it would have left a lot of people who have insurance without insurance. Yeah, I, I would say that you know, I just fundamentally disagree with what the Congressional Budget Office uh, analysis was, and and I think they always have overestimated quote guaranteed insurance through a government program versus 
a support for you know a open and private sector marketplace. But, uh, but healthcare a, is not like another market. Agreed. But but everybody I, needs healthcare. I, I I don't. You can't say, well, I'm not going to have healthcare. I don't. Because- I don't disagree with you. And and so the question is, you know. How are we going to provide it? Is it going to be through a government-oriented type program like Medicaid or Medicare? Or are we going to provide it through uh, people having choices of, with a variety of different private sector products with to buy affordable insurance? And I think you could say, and I'm sure you, you might agree at least in part, that for many Americans, the – Insurance products on the exchanges are not affordable right now. Uh, if you get a Partly, subsidy, they are. Yeah. But but right. if you don't Certainly. get subsidy, I, yeah. I can tell you, I'm on one. And I pay uh, roughly $30,000 a year in premiums. Now, for most Americans, that is not an affordable policy. And and I and I have a, probably, a, I think it's either ten dollars or $12,000 deductible. So, you know, I do it. Why? We... We were just talking about it because I have a child with a disability and I I can't not have insurance with someone who mm-hmm. uh, who has those kinds of medical conditions. So, you know, I'm willing to put a big chunk of my income toward that because I have to. But if you're a 27 year old with, you know, four kids at home and that's what I have on my insurance right now, you're not going to pay thirty thousand dollars for that. I mean, you're just you're just not you're going to you're going to go out and either you, you we should point out you're you're in a advantage position now that you're out of government i'm out of government i'm making can, i'm making, making good yeah money. cnn's paying me a fortune right you and me well, right <laughs> they are i'm gonna have to renegotiate <laughs> rick santorum it's been uh it's been a pleasure to, it's been long. to have uh, yeah, yeah we'll take care of that we'll take care of that but uh pleasure to chat here as it is on that panel and the great thing about being uh senior commentators is that means that you don't have the jobs you used to have so you can be a little more relaxed and a little bit more, maybe Thought- even a more candid. More candid, a little bit more introspective and thoughtful. Yeah. Good to be with you. Thank you. You too. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.